Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to this season's bonus episode. So this month is Black History Month in the UK and in recognition of this, we have an incredible guest speaker here with us to discuss identity, immigration, Black history and basically as much as we can fit in within the next hour or so. So we are very excited to be joined by Professor Kahinde Andrews. Kahinde is what I'd like to describe as a triple threat. He's an academic, activist and author. He is a professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and he has written several pieces with his most recent book being The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. So yeah, welcome Kahinde. Yeah, hi, nice to be here. Triple threat. I like that. I've never, I've never said that one. <laughs> I think it should go with it. Yeah, you can, you can take, take that, that as an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> We're really excited to have you on. And just before we get into it, and also for our listeners who haven't come across your story and your work just yet, our standard first question is usually, where are you from? Or where are you really from? As okay. the loaded question. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, where am I? Where am I from? Uh, I was so I was born in Birmingham, um, in the UK. But my dad is Jamaican. Uh, he's actually my dad retired back to Jamaica just last year, and my mom was born in Manchester, but she's half. Her dad's Jamaican, and her mom is English. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting family. Bet my my white grandmother was uh, volunteered at the Fifth Pan African Congress in um, in Manchester in 19, wow. 1945. <laughs> wow. Even even the white side of my family is into black politics. <laughs> <laughs> it runs in the family. I like it. Nice. So let's get into it. One of the elements that we really want to discuss with you is just around kind of black identity and things. And I think reading up on you and there was a really interesting article um, I found which discussed around um growing up you know you had a period of rejecting your culture and in the article I think you described it as falling into whiteness so I just you know I'm so as I said I am I grew up in the Congo but I actually kind of grew up really I was yeah brought up in Devon so I have kind of struggled sometimes with identity but I just wanted to know and understand like how and why did that develop for you did you feel and really what turned things around for you um yeah I mean actually writing a piece there's a whole piece going to come out in the Guardian specifically about that that time um because yeah it's something that I, honestly it was a it was a traumatic time I was young like 11 11 years secondary school so probably about 11 and what it, what it was was I was brought up in British black power I'd say about it's a family business um uh, black, black studies for me and I was always raised to understand that blackness is important to your identity to who you are and I go to this school and I was in actually my parents actually want me to go to a grammar school or even a private school um but I failed all the exams on purpose because I, I didn't want to go I wish um, so. I wish that was my reason for failing grammar school I really wish that was my reason I was just terrible <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm saying now that's, that's, that's what I'm saying I failed it on purpose um but um yeah no it wasn't really political at the time I just wanted to go my sister went to a, a comprehensive and I wanted to go to the same school so I can't say it was this big political rejection of um of, of grammar schools but I ended up, so I ended up going to, because I think people sometimes forget how bad, well, people don't even necessarily know if you're not old enough. In the 90s, at the end of the last Tory government, the schools were terrible. I mean, they were so bad. Um, in inner city Birmingham, my mom basically said, you cannot go to a school in inner city Birmingham. The school that's near my house, uh, we knew somebody who got stabbed to death. It was just really bad. Like, they were terrible. So there was a bus that went through at a black neighborhood and it went to a white, the white area. And it took, so it's just it's lots of black and Asian kids on this bus going to this school that used to have a good reputation. Turned out to be just as bad as every other school, really. Um, but in that school, like, it was so obvious, the racial separation, what was expected of black kids. Like, day, like day one when you go into school, you could just see, like, what, how come I'm one of the only black kids in the, in the top set? Where, how are we be, we're being treated very differently. And so... Uh, yeah, that filters down to the kids and some kids were like well if I'm going to be rejected I'm going to fully I'm going to fully embrace that and being black means you know not not doing well not trying to be in the top set not behaving etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's how I took blackness to mean in my 11 year old head so I was like well if, if black is bad and I'm not going to do well then I have to be white right I have to try and be white 
And I had a period, a few, a few years in school where I only had white friends, only like did like, white things. You could like, be like really hung around with white people all the time. Was into white music. I mean, the worst example would be the low point was probably I don't know if you're even old enough to remember the song Mbop. Yeah, Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how I've gone. They that made was, an album. That's where you went. You know, well, they made an album. I bought the album. That was a low point, anyway. But then, um, but then and I, and I, I found, well, one day I was, because my family has all these books, like Black Power books. I was walking past uh, and saw Stoutly Speaks from Black Power to Pan Africanism. And he had a really. He looked, he just, the book looked stupid. Like he had, he had this funny little afro and big glasses and he's holding a gun above his head. It looked ridiculous. So I just thought it'd be funny to read it. And I started reading the book and it completely changed. Like everything, like by the end of the book, I was totally different. Malcolm X talks about when he was in prison and he read, it was like snow falling off a roof, how sudden the change was yeah. in how he thought. And that, that book just put me on a completely different path to where I am now, effectively. Mm, it's interesting to hear about how that book like played such a part in shaping your views and taking you to the path that you were kind of today. And it kind of reminds me as well of recently on the BBC, there was a series um, that included around subnormal education for black people and just looking at how black pupils were mistreated throughout the education system and also the role of Saturday supplementary schools as well that kind of rose up through that. So it's like you had that moment for yourself and you also got empowered by reading kind of black material. With fewer of these kind of spaces today in terms of prominent Saturday schools, how, how do you think that those of us within the black diaspora can kind of form this connection to our history and our, our identity as well, like in the same way you did? Yeah, it's a shame because I, I was lucky because I, I grew up in, I didn't go Saturday school, but like my my mom and dad worked in one of the first, started one of the first Saturday schools in the country, in Birmingham. You know, we had all these books. So like, I just happened to walk past, so I say I happened to walk past this book of black, and that's just all the books in my parents' house. At some point, I was bound to bump into something and read something, and I'd already kind of grown up with it anyway. So at some point, I was probably going to come to, come back to it eventually, um, but just because of, just because of how I grew up, right? Um, yeah. Whereas a lot of people don't have that, right? Most people in, the, in my situation as a young person wouldn't have had that. Um, and would have been stuck and would have been trapped there and would have not really known anything else, right? That blackness is is bad, it's negative, uh, it's not what I want to do, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I was fortunate enough to be able to fall back on a whole range of resources um, saying blackness is positive. And that really is what the Saturday School Movement did. So my first book was about Saturday schools, um, which were organized uh, in the, in the started in the 60s. And very much the idea of, if you think about the British Black Power Movement, heavily was about education different ideas different way of thinking about things even the books the fact that we had these books like we take for granted loads of things now and one of them is is our access to knowledge like i can just go on amazon and get any book basically pretty much delivered to my house tomorrow back in the 60s we couldn't do that like were, none of these books were there anywhere they had to proper like bootleg the books into the country like some of the stories my dad tells me about how he found this book in some guy's house in america and then brought it back to the uk it was like a proper effort to build up these collections um and so that alternative space for education absolutely important and nurtured so many people um but it has declined it's declined massively so and i think that is one of the reasons why and it's going to sound old like as i am getting a bit older but you know I, t- I teach young black people all the time and there certainly is probably naturally no because now we do black studies the people who come to black studies are pretty, are pretty political but generally i would say there's a the younger generation aren't as political and I don't, and I don't, and that's, that's not to blame young people. That's my, that's our fault. That's my fault. Like if, if, if there's a generation of people who don't know stuff, then we don't, the older generation, which I'm a part of, has failed to do something, um, which is why I think it's really important that we kind of get back to those alternative spaces for education. And do you think from a young people's perspective, are there things that they should also be doing to kind of also take ownership of that learning and stuff? Because it's definitely not from a curriculum perspective, I think it took me actually us setting up this podcast for me to really actively learn. But is there elements that you feel like actually there's an accountability perspective from young people to also, you know, develop that understanding just as you did? Um, yeah, yes, yeah, so definitely. But like I said, I had they were in my house, so like I was, for me, it was all easy enough, right? Like I had to, yeah. I, had, I, had, I had to actually walk past uh, the books every yeah. day. So at some point, I'm going to book, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, and, and also, like, it's not like I even I had the education. And, and another part, 
I guess a more personal, not political part of that story is I was rejected my dad as well. Like, I, I grew up with this. Like, I grew up volunteering in the Harriet Tubman bookshop. Like, mm. and I was just kind of rejecting it. Like, you know, you reject, you, at some point you just reject your parents because that's what you do. And my parents are all black, 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 black. So I just reject, yeah. partly it was just that. So I had a ba- I had a background that most people are, don't have. So mm. I can see why people don't. Um, like if you don't know where to go, don't know where to find stuff, it's, it's, it's difficult. But I certainly want in this generation, it's a lot easier, like way easier than it was mm. back in the day. Like you have these kind of podcasts, there's stuff online. Um, and you, sh- you, yeah, you definitely, yeah, you, I don't want to say young people shouldn't do anything like, um, but I think that we have to do a lot more to make sure that people know the stuff's there. With Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think like this idea of like really reconnecting with your identity and things is, you know, we've seen it to the extreme in recent times when you've come to looking at kind of Trump's administration and looking to make America great again. And of course, Britain and Brexit and, you know, taking back control, um, that line. And these rhetorics really seem to resonate with voters, but fail to actually tackle real issues that the country faces, like inequalities and widening wealth gap and lack of affordable housing. And one of the things that I was wondering is just, do you feel like um in Britain there's a kind of uncomfortable like are we uncomfortable with looking in the mirror when it comes to taking ownership of real issues you know why do you think that is um well I think there's a reason this the school system teaches us what it teaches us and it's to maintain the status quo right like I mean this is the problem yeah. I think black people mm. generally have done is that we have relied way too much on the schools and media etc you know you send a kid to school and you expect them it's going to be all right send them to a good uni whatever no, like, it's not how it no. works. That like, really isn't. Like, imagine I'm, I'm a professor. I've gone through every level of education. I've never, ever been taught anything about the British Empire. Oh, how wh- can you have an education wow. in Britain and the British Empire is like the thing which makes Britain? I know nothing. I know one thing about the British Empire once in my entire educational career. But that's insane, right? When you think about it. Yeah. Especially like to be a professor and have not like, obviously getting to the point you are now. But that's that honestly <laughs> massively shocks me. <laughs> To have gone through the whole <laughs> system like that. Nobody else is saying, right? But, <laughs> but that's our purpose. That's our purpose. They don't want this certain things. They don't want you to. They don't want to talk about. You don't want to know. Same thing about housing crisis and the politics and the economic economics and stuff. School don't do that. Like it really doesn't. So we, if you're going to have that education, then we have to provide that ourselves. That's something that we have to learn back from when from like the 60s, 70s, the self help movement. We didn't expect the schools to do these kind of things, so we did them ourselves. And our main problem has been that we started expecting schools to do things and universities to yeah. do things that they're not going to do. Um, so we need to take it. We need to, we as a community have to take responsibility for that ourselves. That's such an interesting way to look at it because in my mind, I've never thought about it. Like you do actually place a lot of onus on the school to, you know, when they come, when your kid come out, comes out of the whole system and everything, they will know X, Y, and Z and, you know, know everything about, not everything about society, but will have a strong understanding of, what is going on in the world but actually there's a giant hole that is left which is a key part of their identity which never actually gets taught to them at all yeah it's it's but i think and i feel and i can say and i and i to some extent like i don't want to say i don't want to say like because people are making mm-hmm. a big effort to change the schools mm-hmm. um change the curriculum change what happens in universities and look, I'm, I'm doing that too we've got a black studies degree for that reason right um but there are limits to the extent to which that that is possible and actually if you look at one of the things that Saturday schools have really always done is really been a way to teach kids how to navigate the mainstream while providing them an alternative education. So, you know, how to deal with racism in the school, how to pass your exams, how to do this stuff. It doesn't change what happens in the mainstream, but it allows you to navigate through. And actually, students are often, black students are, quite, are disappointed when I come and talk and they're like, um, oh, I've got this problem with my lecturer. You know, he's saying I, should, I shouldn't read these things. I should do this. I should do that um and uh, what do i do and my response is just do what he says like just honestly get the thing done and and, and get out like understand <laughs> that your these things are bits of paper which are necessary for your career but your education yeah. is, at, is outside and mm-hmm. I, I just you why have you got time to fight your professor just do what they say you <laughs> get you get your qualification and move on nothing that i now teach and get paid to do did i learn in school college or university i just tick the boxes got the stuff and, and moved on with my life and that that kind of learning that it, it sounds kind of pessimistic maybe but it, it, once you once you do that, you'll have a much better a much better experience in the in the institution. But also, then you can focus on saying, well, actually, how can I do the interesting things and get the interesting knowledge in in spaces which are meant to do that? Yeah, that's really interesting because it's like, well, obviously, the the institutions are kind of perpetuating these systems. So 
yeah, it is a bit pessimistic, but I understand the angle that, that you take um, when, when describing it. And I guess like another important element that Britain's identity kind of revolves around is like developing these systems. So we have National Health Service, which benefits everyone, but an element that gets lost within that entity basically is the role of the Windrush generation and how mm -hmm. they played a part in its success. And we also have similar contributions. So you know how it's always about the world wars, you know, but mm -hmm. actually the contribution that black people made from the British Empire is often left out. We're just wondering if you could shed some light on some of the contribution that black people have had towards building these sources of pride within Britain. Um, yeah, so like this is the thing with the not learning about empire is Britain as a nation that we think about it today and uh, not the after the Act of Union in Scotland, the link Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland comes a bit later. That only happens because of the British Empire. There is no country of Britain prior to the British Empire. And I think people forget this all the time. Like England was not, Britain is a creation of empire. Scotland joined the union because they wanted to get involved in slavery. Slavery is making loads of money for England. And they were like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's, get, let's get in on that. Which is why my surname's Andrews and many, 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 many descendants of the enslaved have Scottish, Scottish surnames. It's the wealth from the empire that really brings the whole union mm. together, right? So, mm. and if you're thinking about the key developments of Britain, Britain becomes Great Britain um, through that colonial period. Uh, slavery, massively important. Without slavery, Britain is nothing, literally nothing. Um, colonial, colonial exploitation of Asia and Africa and the rest of the world, etc. Um, that's what makes Britain Britain. That's why Britain has the money for the Industrial Revolution in the first place. That's why cities like, well, it's easier to look at port cities. So sometimes when we think about slavery, we think about Bristol, Liverpool, London, because of the, the slave ports. But Birmingham does not become Birmingham without money from slavery. The Industrial Revolution cannot function. The, the things that, that, that power the Industrial Revolution are sugar, tobacco, yeah. and cotton. All of those three things were, were slave produced. Like, you literally don't have any of the Industrial Revolution without, without, um, without slavery. So that Manchester doesn't exist at all in the same way that we think about Manchester uh, without slavery. So we've always been here, right? Like always from the very beginning. And if you think about things like the National Health Service, I mean, we shouldn't even call it the National Health Service. We should call it the Imperial Health Service because one, you can't get the money for it without empire. And two, you can't get the workforce without empire. I mean, even now, like it's what, 26, 27, 27% of the workforce is foreign born. Not like that's not just black and Asian, that's foreign born. They still actually have to import more than a quarter of the workforce from the former colonies today. And that was the same in the, when it started in the 40s. Um, second, the world wars, there actually really were world wars. I think people underestimate that millions of Africans, people in the Caribbean, Asia, contribute to those wars without. In fact, my great, my another one of my white family members, great uncle, died in Africa in the Second wow. World War. Actually, there's a day after the, the war had actually finished, the war had actually been declared over. And he got shot in Libya, I think it was. Um, it was a properly global thing where we all contribute. But we tell this story where Britain is this island and it's complete nonsense. Like, that's why I always push back on people. Like, I don't have to prove there were black people on these islands to prove that we are connected to Britain. My, my, my family in Jamaica was just as important to the, and maybe more important to the British development as my family mm. in Manchester. You mm. can't have what we have today without, without all of us. Yeah, and I feel like there's a element of the narrative that it can't be the building of the kind of like Great Britain can't be something that was just purely done by the British there was no involvement of anyone else and I feel like it facilitates this feeling of being kind of a hero and kind of a savior complex in, in a sense as well I feel like it definitely furthers that a bit more and would you say we've kind of noticed obviously in recent years that the country has been in decline a little bit when it comes to investment especially when you're looking at kind of public services to what extent do you feel like this is a result of britain's inability to kind of rely on its former colonies much more overtly today um i don't know because i think if you actually look at british society it's only a really small period of time that there really was any investment in in the in the, in the lower classes like really like it's, if you look at inequality prior to the second world war it was just about as bad as it is now like it's terrible right like um and it, it is very much the wealth of empire that allows Britain to develop and certainly the gets the manpower to develop uh through through um the colonial subject, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but really what the the thing that's changed that's the the only real reason that the elite in the UK in the UK really trickled that wealth down to the masses was because they were terrified of uh, communism. If we're honest, if it's a hundred percent honest, there's a there's this fear that there's gonna be a communist revolution, 
And because of that, you see in America, you see in Europe, okay, let, let, let's have a welfare state. And the thing that's really declined in that regard is there's no communism anymore. So because because there's no alternative, they don't care. They've gone back to normal. They've gone back to when they were, they were doing it before. <laughs> there's no incentive anymore, really. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And actually what you're seeing here is, so when we're complaining about like austerity, um, you know, privatization of services, all these, their friends are getting money with contracts, um, corruption, um, outsourcing. Uh, all that stuff already happened in, in the develop in the underdeveloped world. That's that's been happening for a long time. What oh, you yeah. see, <laughs> you just see it come home to, to, to England. Now everybody's complaining about it. It's just called a different name. That's all. <laughs> different yeah, name. Cronyism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And your book raised an interesting point around like how shifting the blame for poverty and this lack of investment um, has been shifted from the root cause and actually onto immigrants and those who come into uh, the like into Britain probably from the colonies and recently um, from the EU um, which has actually made for a really successful election strategy within western countries it seems like every western country is saying keep immigrants out basically and they get votes um, why do you think this resonates so well with voters um because whiteness whiteness is such an important like whiteness is one of the most underrated it's kind of the thing that shapes the whole world white supremacy and the idea of white um the idea of white supremacy and whiteness white people as being unique and um deserving of the bounties of the world i mean that really if you just think about it, if you look at a map of global inequality today the poorest part of the world is the black part right yeah. so-called sub-saharan yeah. africa the richest is the white part with the white people with the west western countries and then you have this kind of hierarchy in between that's not an accident that, that's 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 the way the world has been designed and so, you know, we've ne even though we equally built and we couldn't have built any of this, the, the prosperity that we have, we were never meant to share it. That was never supposed to be the case. Um, mm. So when people come from the former colonies into the um, mother countries, then there's all this resentment. Mm -hmm. right? And then we've been told because white, white is superior, white is different. We're not in the, you, you don't have the right to these things, which is why you see it's, uh, it's such a, it really hits home with the electorate that idea um, that we have to protect protect for their privileges. It's just really interesting. Like, I find fascinating the fact that those narratives and the, the language being used it's very similar to what we see. You know, when it was during colonial times and the way in which they were able to, you know, take over the continent. And then now it's just told in a different way. And you've got this image of kind of immigrants, and you're trying to like this whole idea of protecting ourselves and you know sovereignty and all of this stuff. It's just I just find it fascinating how the change in language, but actually at the root of it, it's very much the same. Hundred um, percent. I mean, this is it, it, I mean, imagine saying that someone from the West Africa has no right to come to Britain. I mean, I mean, just given what you, Britain has done to West Africa and continues to do, but it hasn't really changed, right? Like, yeah. Cadbury's factory in Birmingham is right here. The Cadbury's exploits so much wealth out of its cocoa fields and cocoa farmers in Ghana to produce its wealth today, not, not in the past, today. In fact, most people, the cocoa farmers in Ghana probably live in pretty much the same conditions they lived 100 years ago. Um, it hasn't really changed at all. Uh, yet, with the people from Ghana have no right to come to Britain. It, it really makes no sense when you think about it. No, definitely. And we've like, obviously now with the situation in the UK with Brexit and making it harder, kind of closing off our borders or um, whatever. When you have gotten, you know, rid of pe the people, who do you blame next? Where do you feel like, especially from a media perspective, government perspective, who do they have left to blame when it comes to situation in the country? <laughs> um, that's interesting. So what will happen is, I, I can already predict this 100%. There'll be, uh, this is when you'll get the resurgence of the left. You see the left starting to come back a little bit. Um, and what will basically happen is there'll be a ex acceptance that the rich have taken too much money and there'll be a kind of reboot of social democracy. So, and you also already kind of see it with the Johnson government, kind of see it because they still like to attack the poor. But if you look at some of the programs, the spend, government spending that they're putting in, et cetera, et cetera, that's what will happen. And if you actually feel actually honest about this emergence of the new left, it really starts after the financial statuism to some extent because the rich start taking lots of money. Um, but it's really a financial crisis when there's a squeeze yeah. on living standards, et cetera. But if what they're basically arguing is for a return to social democracy, where you tax the rich more, you improve services, you reduce the gap of inequality. My family came to this country during social democracy, with very, very high taxation. It was still really racist. It didn't deal with any of the problems globally. Um, what the debate on the left and the right at the minute is really, how do we share the spoils of neocolonialism? Can we just share them more fairly within the West? It's not about saying, actually, we need to change the system, which is literally kills people by the second around the world. The left is 
just as the left is just as rooted in whiteness as the right unfortunately mm, that's such an important point because i think that's that's i was literally when i, when I read that in your book i literally was like yes like this is 100 percent it it's so easy to often think that they're completely different but at the same time the left and the right are both continuing on the whole idea of white supremacy whether we like it or not right i guess yeah, yeah unfortunately i mean this is the thing like with people keep calling me a marxist which is really funny because i'm really not a marxist and i actually write a whole, <laughs> I've got a whole chapter you know, a whole chapter in back to black saying why i'm not a marxist um, <laughs> They just don't believe you. They don't believe. You say it louder. Yeah, I'm not a Marxist. Okay, um, but no Marxist. So Marx gets a pass because Marx is about revolution, etc., etc. Marx is just as racist as the rest of them. Like Marx is terrible. Marx didn't have any time Africans or at all. Um, and what he just presents, what he's really doing is presenting a more egalitarian view for white people. It's not about us at all. It really isn't. Um, but it, it, but it's something that it makes uh, the white left feel more comfortable, right? Because all the workers of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Well, come on, that's complete nonsense. The idea, you think about the Occupy movement, which is this whole bit. So actually, my favorite bit in the book, and people don't, don't usually ask me about, um, you know, the Occupy movement, the slogan, we are the 99%. That's, that's actually deeply offensive. Like, the conditions mm-hmm. in the West are so different mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. The, the poorest person here is in the top, probably higher than this, but let's say the top. 80% in the entire world. Like most people in the world don't have an indoor toilet. Like that's the majority of the world. We're just in a completely different sphere here. There's no way we're in the 90, nobody here is in the 99%. Um, that's that proper like white, white universalist nonsense. But that drives the left just as much as it drives the right. Speaking around looking at the British government, we've got the loudest ethnic minorities which are within the British government, um, such as Priti Patel or Kemi Badenoch, who are very much outspoken in the way they are against like black and brown immigrants from making progress in this country. What effects do you think this has on legitimizing anti-immigration rhetoric? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a there's a whole cottage industry now of um, basically just black and brown people saying racist things that white people can't say. <laughs> so no, so true. They're <laughs> I mean, just like, like it's like it's written it and be like, please you say it, because it'll be <laughs> Honestly, only another black person could be like, oh, colonization yeah. doesn't matter anymore. Like, what? Yeah, this is like, it started with, what was the, I think Trevor Phillips started it uh, when oh, he did God. a, a documentary, Things You Can't Say About Race That Are True. Uh, it's like, if a white person said this stuff, somebody put in prison, it actually probably be a hate crime. Coming out of a black person's face, apparently, is okay. It's, I'm going to use the term, like, people don't like because I, I just don't make it plain, right? The term for this is called cooning. It, it is it is when you because the coon show was like the black and white minstrel show when you know you black up and you dance and do this stereotypes so basically for white audiences to enjoy their racism um and some black some some black some like lenny henry is the um chancellor of my uni that was one of his first jobs right like because it was something you could do you could be in the black and white minstrel show there was an audience for it that's what these right-wing black people are doing there's nothing there's no other way to describe it it's, they're not that's not a message for us because i think we know that they're stupid that is really to, to put out these racist images and to get those white racist audiences all, all, all fired up. And people are making good money out of it, I suppose. Fair play to them. I guess you a cabinet position. <laughs> Boy, hey, hey, it's, not, it's not progressive. The only thing I would say is it's not really, not really new either. So with Empire, because we don't tell the story of Empire, and the British Empire in particular, it wasn't a set of, it wasn't usually, it wasn't set of the colonies. It was controlled from a distance. So most of the people actually running the colonies, um, there were certainly white people there, but there was loads and loads of black and brown people. You couldn't have had British colonialism without black and brown people who were facilitating colonialism. Um, so it's not really new. Like the empire was always diverse. There was always a few people you could get because there's there's more money, there's more prestige, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. People always do that. So it's not really a new thing. It just it just feels different because of because of the media and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's not really a different thing. No, it's really interesting that it's basically just like you're saying, a continuation, really. It just yeah, now in modern times when we have these figures kind of up there. And just moving slightly away from kind of Britain specifically and looking obviously now that we've left the EU and are struggling with unnecessary domestic issues like HGB, <laughs> um, at the same time, we do have to think about what U- the European Union stands for. You know, in some ways, we've come to think of it as very much a hangover of the Berlin Conference of 84 to 85 as, you know, the wealthy European nations seek to kind of keep their wealth within this very exclusive club and make every attempt to prevent black and brown people who have been exploited from really tapping into this wealth. But what are your thoughts on what 
the EU actually represents. I mean, that really is what the EU represents. Like, it was a fun, it's a funny position to be in to defend the EU because the EU is awful. I mean, the EU is. Yeah. I mean, jeez. What about anti-immigration? I mean, God, the EU is terrible. Oh, yeah. Europe. My yeah. days. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it really is a, a a collection. The most ironic thing with the campaign for Brexit. And I don't know why anybody believed this. Like Farage is going around saying, oh, Turkey's going to join the EU. Turkey's going to join the EU. Turkey's never, ever, ever, ever going to be allowed into the EU because the EU is a white club. That simple. Like, no doubt about it, it'll never happen. It's a white club. And if you look at the first way it was founded, they even had maps. I have to find something. One of my colleagues, uh, John Ryan, does this. But they even have maps where they talk about like the core of the EU and they're thinking about expanding the EU out to North Africa. But the North Africans will actually have membership rights. They'd essentially just be <laughs> oh, colonial wow. states to the EU. And oh, EU is, my goodness. That is terrible. I swear. The EU is awful. Um, <laughs> and, if, and if you think about like the frontier, the frontier, the EU frontier, the EU is horrendous. Mm. Um, but yeah, I suppose you could argue it's better to be in it for Britain than out of it. But it's not something I'd ever personally defend. Yeah, I think, I think we've come to realise that through the, the research that we're doing and just realising that these guys are building walls just as much as how Trump said he was going to build walls, but they are doing it on such a massive scale. Um, why was I supporting this? But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird situation to be in and to reflect about. Just had a question as, as well um, around this whole myth of a post-racial society. So we often see some people argue that we are indeed in this post-racial society um, because the media, particularly here in the UK, like to amplify or obsess over the white working class men or young boys being, quote unquote, left behind. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think there is this obsession over this storyline, particularly when obviously describing your experiences in school and what continues to happen to black pupils in school is also it's, it's an awful situation? Um, yeah, because there's people don't decide that you want to minimize the amount that we talk about race and to really the idea that we've moved on, moved past race is a deeply neo-colonial way in many ways to think about the problem. Right. Um, and so this focus on the white working class, it's, it's ironic because these people don't care about white working class at all. They never care. No, <laughs> you had a footballer trying to feed children <laughs> no. like they didn't even want no. to feed school kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no exactly. it's terrible they care the least these are people make this argument and the people that care the least if they care they just pay more tax right it's complicated pay more taxes we solve this problem basically overnight right um so what this actually is this is a way to to, to continue pushing race racist agendas um it's that culture war stuff I mean, it's complete nonsense like nobody would argue and i would certainly wouldn't argue that that poor white people do well. We live in capitalism. I mean, mm. poor, poor people do badly. This is just a, this is just a fact, right? The reason they focus particularly on white so-called working class boys and, so, and in schools is because it's really the one area where you can find a statistic and twist it to make it, make it look like white people are doing badly. Yeah. Like, there is no other area. Like, look at every other statistic. It's not possible. Um, but there's, a, there's this one statistic on free school meal. People on, white boys on free school meals do worse than other minorities. Not all minorities, because travelers actually do worse than everybody. Well, but the rest of minorities, they do worse than um, the, even Black Caribbean, they do worse than Black Caribbean on, the, on free school meals. So they picked out this one stat that you can find and run with that all the way because it's the only thing that backs up, um, backs up their argument. But even that one stat is complete nonsense. I mean, free school meal access is not, I mean, I, I'm not a Marxist, but I do understand Marxism and class and, and analysis and no one has ever defined class as access to free school meals. It's just ridiculous. Like... And if you actually look at the free school meals data, what it tells you is if you're black, you're twice as likely to be on free school meals. It's actually showing you white privilege. Yeah. White privilege is the fact that you're far less likely to be on free school meals. That's what we should be looking at. But instead, we're saying, oh, no, but this, this much smaller fraction of the white population do worse on free school meals, which you shouldn't really be surprised by. Because for lots of reasons, black people have been more likely to be on free school meals. Racism in the employment, employment market would be, a, would be a big part of that. So you can't really compare a group that's twice the size right there's in that free school meal category there's going to be people whose parents uh, have been to university but just can't get good jobs mm -hmm. right because the racism yeah. in the employment market is, is so high it's not the same group it's just not a comp you can't really compare across but they do it anyway knowing that you can't do that call it white working class because it makes it look like it fits that narrative that you know Im immigrants are coming they're taking our jobs they're overtaking us we put too much effort and too much emphasis on into into minority communities and the worst thing is that if you actually because of educational inequality, we have really worked quite hard to change to reverse this. So 
you know, if you look at the groups that have gained, like Pakistani Bangladeshis have gone up quite a lot. Africans have gone up. Caribbean's gone up a little bit as well. That's because we put loads of effort in. We actually haven't had any support from the government. Like the, all the government does is, is schemes like aim higher. Like, you know, just have, have a mentor. Think think a bit better about yourself. <laughs> it's just nothing. We haven't actually been given anything. We just have to, we just have to work really hard. And, it is, and then we do a bit better. It is somehow a problem. Like university access. So we are more likely to go to university because there's, we understand because of racism, we have to, right? Mm. But we haven't been given any help to do that. And actually, the opposite is true. If you actually look at all the interventions in terms of um, education, they're all about, they're all class specific. Pupil premium is class specific. Free school meals, actually, ironically, is class specific, right? It's for poor people, it's for poorer people. Um, there's millions of pounds goes in, millions and millions and millions, billions, probably billions of pounds goes in, even though the idea of free school in the first place, right? Like universal education. We spend billions of pounds trying to address the class issue and we spend no money at all trying to address the race issue. It's a complete nonsense. Yeah, no, definitely. And you definitely get this sense that, you know, the same people saying that we're in this post-racial world and society also hold the belief that once countries that within the continent and beyond gained independence, that they were then free. But what are, from your perspective, some of the really lingering effects, and I think we've touched on some of them already, of colonisation that we continue to see within kind of Africa and beyond? Well, the lingering effect is the fact that nothing really changed fundamentally. I mean, what happened was the politics of it changed, but the economic relationship didn't change at all. Like, not even really remotely did it change. Um, what you had, this is why the book's called The New Age of Empire, is because after the Second World War, there is a, there's a shift in gear, largely because there's a kind of before World War II, it's heavily, you know, European empire dominated, lots of overt violence, like slavery and massacres and things like this. That couldn't hold forever, largely because people resist, people rebel. Also, the Second World War impoverished Europe to a, to a large degree. Europe just couldn't afford uh, anything, couldn't even afford to have Britain, let alone the empire. And, and so you couldn't really, that, that form of, of white supremacy could no longer hold. And what we transitioned to after World War II was it moved away from European empires um, and lots, there's still lots of violence now, but it moved away from European empires and America became the center of, of imperialism. It was, which makes sense. I mean, America is just Europe on steroids, right? It's a place where- <laughs> Yeah, best way to <laughs> put it. <laughs> that is the best way yeah. I've heard it described. How else can you describe it? It's like a place where loads of Europeans were killed, loads of natives enslaved black people and created this really white supremacist society it's, it's europe on steroids which is why you can see race relations so much clearer in america than you can here yeah mm. because there's there's no holes barred there like it's so obvious brazil would be another example where you can just see very 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 clearly um and so when america takes over malcolm x uses the term basically says the europeans kind of get trapped like in basketball if you play basketball you, get, you can get trapped in the corner and so they pass the ball uh, to the americans and he calls it um benevolent imperialism Ooh. So America basically pretends to be your friend, uh, pretends to be giving you aid, pretends to be a helping hand. All the meanwhile, it's interfering in your elections. It will it will destroy you with this army if if you if you if you cross a line. Um, but it's pretending to be your friend. You get formal independence, right? So all African countries have independence, have independence. But if you actually look at the economics, the countries today are still as um, controlled economically by the West as they ever were. I mean, it didn't change at all. Like independent Ghana, like Ghana, just take the Cadbury factory in Ghana, for example. It's exactly the same today as it was under British imperialism. It made no difference. And so all the wealth is still being extracted out. Uh, you just feel a bit better because you can celebrate Independence Day. That is, yeah, it is a source of contention. I, also, I, will, I do feel a bit weird celebrating Independence Day these days just because there's such a difference for those people, for example, being Nigerian, living in Nigeria compared to me, and just the difference when it comes to Independence Day, those in the diaspora are like, yeah, independence, but those actually living in Nigeria Where, are just why, like, because, yeah, what, what has changed? What has changed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. Yeah, I went to Nigeria a couple of years ago. I, I, you know, no, I was surprised. I have to say, I knew what it would be like, but I just seeing it, visually seeing it, it's, it's depressing. It's like, wow, like, this, is not, this is not an independent country. Calling it independent is... It's one of the richest countries in Africa, right? Yeah. But the poverty is unimaginable. Like, it's unimaginable. Even though I knew, I was still couldn't really imagine it. So I was seeing it, I was like, wow, that's a different level. So if you actually, yeah, what, what are we celebrating? And when you look at, you know, who controls the oil wealth in, in Nigeria, it's not Nigeria. Look at where the money, we talk about corruption. I mean, corruption is only possible because of the West, right? Like, where does all the money go? It all suddenly disappears into the West, right? Like, it's, 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 you had all of these corruption deals. Like, there was one with Good Luck Jonathan where it was Shell and any the Italian company, and in the deal, like the money came in, and then a billion dollars that overnight just disappeared. 
Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, like what? He stole a billion dollars overnight. And that's completely, that's only possible with, yes, that's not African corruption, that's European. That's, that's colonialism, right? That's the continuation of colonialism. And, it's, and you can see the impact it has on a country like Nigeria, which should be really rich, but it's actually mm. really, really cool. Definitely. And there's always talks around Africa's future and predictions on where the continent is going. And in recent years, we've seen China's growing presence in Africa and the heavy investment they're making in areas such as transport and healthcare infrastructure. Are we starting to see the beginnings of a new form of exploitation on the continent? Yeah, it's not a new form. It's an old form, really mm. different place. This is being mm. 100% honest. Like, what is the problem in Africa is that Africa is the, should be the richest part of the world. Uh, it's got all the resources, fertile farmland. By every measure, Africa should be the, the richest one on the planet. It is the poorest continent because those resources are literally just stolen out of the ground. Firstly, it was by Europeans. Um, China's now come in, and they're not doing anything different. They're just doing the same thing the Europeans are doing. Um, but because they're in the second phase, benevolent imperialism, they don't have that history of slavery. They don't have that history of colonialism. Revolutionary China was really helpful to Africa in terms of like, like Mozambique, um, Tanzania, the revolutionary movements. So it has a better reputation. But if you actually look at Af China's relationship to Africa is exactly the same as the West relationship to Africa. It exploits resources out for nothing, so it can create products and it can sell them and make lots and lots of money. It's, 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 it's not the same thing with a different face. It's just so scary, this whole concept. I think the term benevolent imperialism just strikes so high because then you think, where do we go? We've literally taken from one very open and over kind of form of exploitation to one that's much more kind of closed in and slightly... It's still there, and if you do your research there, it's there. But then, like, where, where do you really... What is next? This It's what, like, my brain... Where, where do you go? <laughs> where do we go? It's a good question. Like, the reality is we keep going where we're going. It just gets worse, right? Like, the actual predictions for Africa um, are that poverty... World poverty is, is, is improving mostly because of China. Um, but the predictions for Africa from the World Bank are that by 2100, I think it is, Africa will have 90% of all the people who live in extreme poverty will live in Africa. Like that's where Africa, that's the trajectory of wow. which Africa is heading. Because um, one thing that is improving in Africa is life expectancy, which is still way below everywhere else. So the expectation is that the population in Africa is going to treble, probably like treble in the next by 2100. But imagine Africa is already really poor. So if you treble oh the gosh, population, yeah. oh my what God. happens? Like if, you, if, you mm -hmm. don't, if you don't increase the wealth, you treble the population. That's going to be a disaster. Like, that would actually be a disaster. Uh, but nothing that we're doing at the minute is helping that. All of this is hurting it, and particularly China, not just China, India's involvement. Like, India will come in, and their, their imperialism is technology. So if you look at, like, um, internet provides all that stuff, telephones, telecommunications, they're all foreign-owned, mostly by India now, in, in large parts of Africa. Africa just doesn't own anything. Like, and so this exploitation is just going to keep on, keep on, keep on going. Um, so at some point, we have to recognize that we need to change right like i would think that's what i would say like this we keep going down this road it's going to be even worse than it is but do you not think there is that because i don't think we're unaware of the realities do you see what i mean this is where my kind of sense of frustration sometimes lies because i'm like it is it is there for us to to see but for some reason i don't know if we dance around the topic but how do you then say no is it more from a kind of like a leadership perspective obviously corruption is also huge and it's also not aided by you know, European influence, but what actually needs to happen practically, and obviously we're not going to solve it from this, to actually create that that difference to be like, everyone, why are you opening your eyes? Because um, situation over there. Like, <laughs> yes, you know, so the simple solution to this is, is black consciousness, right? And this is actually one thing that we've never really ever had, like ever had, we've yeah. never understood of ourselves as ourselves as, as, as black people. Not really, like we say it a lot, but we don't really organise around it. Um, and the reason, one of the things which facilitates Africa being destroyed in the way that it is, is that we've kind of really embraced this nation state idea. So, you know, that Europe, you mentioned the Berlin Conference, Europe literally draws the lines. And actually, some of those lines are straight lines uh, and carves up the continent and says, this is a, these are all your countries. Why have we accepted that these are our countries? They're not our countries. They're, they're, these are creations of white supremacy, but they keep us in these containers where we can be easily controlled. Right? If you're Nigeria, separate from Ghana, separate from Togo, separate from Canada, separate from, then you're easy to control, easy to manipulate. Um, the only real solution for Africa to push back properly is to push back as Africa. There's no other solution. Africa, Africa, remember, Africa is the, the richest continent. Africa is the only part of the world, probably, who Africa organized would take itself out of the world system. So we don't actually need 
anybody else, right? What, what, we got all the resources. We just need to develop the infrastructure so that we can use them. Um, and if we did organize like that, and if we did have this like, the idea of um, Pan-Africanism in its more revolutionary sense, that, that's, the, that's the way we get out of this problem. Unfortunately, everything that we're doing is, I would say, probably the opposite, the opposite of that. Yeah, definitely. I think, the, and also the leaders that we have in the position really doesn't aid or support, doesn't even bring us even no. close to <laughs> anything <laughs> that looks no. like a united continent. No, it's a com- no, it's a completely opposite because this is one of the really pernicious things of, of uh, neocolonialism is that migration actually is one of the issues, right? People migrate to Europe and to America to get education, but that is not, it's not, it's, a, it's that it's that same problematic education that Britain has, right? Yeah. Um, we come. The people come here and actually learn how to destroy their countries. Oh, that's what you're oh, wow. like, you come <laughs> and do. <laughs> that, no, yeah, I was going to say that, that is a hot take. Oh, that wow. is a hot take, Kevin. <laughs> oh, people don't like it. But I always tell them. I, I go to international international development department and tell them, like, that's why you're here. You're here to learn how to destroy your country. That's the whole point. Stop it. Don't do it. <laughs> No, that is that is so true, especially when you learn about presidents and players who actually got their education from the UK, for example, which is and they're then sort of destroying their country, which is just insane. Um, What do you think of the movements that we've seen happening in? But you have, for example, the NSARS movement in Nigeria, the Mm. Red Pearl movement in Uganda, which is kind of being led by younger people who are tired, sick of the leadership and want to affect change like. What are your thoughts? And is there a little bit of optimism at all in these? Oh movies? yeah, <laughs> you know. So I might have sounded like I'm really neg- it might have sounded like I'm really negative, but I've actually yeah. got like I think that when you see those kind of movements, NSARS, the yeah, the grassroots movements, that's where the solution, that's where the future is. Like, honestly, that, that and that and as the conditions get worse, actually, you'll see more of those more of those things mm. happen. It's not coincidental that it's austerity. It's you know we've had what we kind of had the boom players here. And then 10 years of austerity, that's when Black Lives Matter really pops up in a big way. It's not coincidental. As the conditions get worse, people are more likely to resist and push back. And they, you just, especially when you can't survive, what else are you going to do, right? So I think that what you're going to see is certainly you're going to see more movements like that. Um, one of the things that we have now that we didn't have previously is you know, it was very difficult to make connections across the continent, uh, to make connections across the diaspora. So you didn't have the technology. There was the technology wasn't there to do it, right? Mm. Whereas you can do that much, 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 much easier now. And you're seeing like NSARS, for example, spreads across because it's, it's, it's it, we all know what that means. Um, so we have the technology uh, to do that. So definitely, no, I fully expect you're going to find lots and lots and lots of movements. The question is, are those movements going to make the problem that you had? If you think about in the '60s, so we had like a revolutionary pan-African movement. We had nat- or we had national mo- nationalist movements, and the problem that they had and really got stuck in. Is they got stuck in the frame of the, of the nation. They were nationalist movements. Yeah. So had, like, well, we take over the nation, then we can then we can unify Africa. But you actually just end up taking over the nation and get stuck, right? So the challenge for the activists now on the ground is to say, well, actually, how are we making sure we're connecting uh, the Nigerian situation to the South African situation to the Jamaican situation, that kind of real organic level, so that we don't make that national mistake? Because really, the nation state is the is the problem. That's the thing that's always going to get in the way. Um, but we do have the technology and the ability to do that in a way. That we've never had before there's some positive light uh, <laughs> there is there is something <laughs> <laughs> no i mean actually no, I, no, no. I feel bad like i made it sound it's all bad it is it, it is all bad but <laughs> but the reason why the reason why it's important to state how bad everything is and actually the new age of empire is really a prequel to back to black so i wrote back to black mm. before before that which is the what is black revolution what does black radicalism look like how do we go forward but I, I did that book in 2018 and from conversations with people, it was obvious that people first needed to understand the scale of the problem yeah. because people are too wedded to this idea that you can fix it, that you can reform it, that we just need to make tweaks. So, and thinking about this, I'm certainly making the argument you need the global black that nation, we've called the global black nation. That's how you get the change that we kind of need. The closest we came to this is actually 100 years ago um, in the Universal Negro Improvement Association started by Marcus and Amy, yeah, Amy Ashwood Bobby in 1914. And by like the 1922 they had the organization had uh, chapters in like 50 countries between 2 million and 8 million members oh, wow. it's the largest black organization ever existed and this was before like they didn't mm. have any technology like really yeah. no they had no internet internet barely had phone what they what they had was the negro world which is a newspaper with mass circulation that went around the different countries and and mobilized people and 
like if they could do it 100 years ago yeah. with like a newspaper yeah. and that's it we surely surely could do it now but the thing that stops us the thing that why you got why did so many people join that organization which is all about saying africa for the africans they talked about the global black nation they got represented at the the league of nations actually in the 1920s um the thing that made so many people join was when the una went around telling people look this isn't for us we need to do something different everybody understood because this is 1920 like you're not thinking about can i be a black professor or can i be elected to who am i going to vote in power the racism was so obvious that everybody went yeah no no we need to do something different whereas now too many of us are convinced that we can get we can get freedom in the system once we understand that's not possible then we'll start to think about the alternatives and we can do the alternatives but we all need to agree that that's where that's that that's necessary or at least enough of us need to agree and that's all we need to do that's just honestly what a lovely way to yeah come to a close thank you so much Kehinde. it's so and i think this is something i really resonated with kind of reading your book is just how sometimes you just need someone to spell out the realities do you know what i mean and sometimes you just need i'm not gonna just need that smack in the face to say this is what is good and that's what it felt like in a very positive and refreshing way it's just <laughs> that's what <laughs> reading the new age of empire really felt like for me and i think yeah thank you so much for your time and just yeah amazing amazing conversation like i literally i've just been nodding incredible how can please tell our lovely listeners you know, where to find you, follow you. Is there anything in particular that you want to promote that you're working on? Please share, share. Yes, far away. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you for the conversations. I really enjoyed that. Um, so like, this is for me, is not theoretical. We talk about the Global Black Nation uh, grassroots organization. We started the Harambe Organization of Black Unity. Um, we have a base in Birmingham, but the idea is anybody can join. People could, when we're trying to build and hopefully, actually what I really want to do in the next five years is ever, is ever, a, a big pan-african conference on the continent oh, wow. where we really can bring everybody together that's the dream but let's let's see what we get to but if you're interested it's www.blackunity.org.uk um, to find out more we also started thinking about um news and different sites and alternatives we started a website called make it plain which is a um, malcolm x quote uh, where we just put up like basically the things i can't write in the guardian because they won't let me <laughs> 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 but it's a space where anybody can write for we want people to write for as well we've got a number of writers now the uh address for that is make-it-plain.org uh, and i guess i should also put one the degree if you want to do we have a we have the only black studies uh, undergraduate or only black studies undergraduate degree we also have black studies with criminal justice and we just launched a, ma a master's actually ma in black studies at birmingham city university if you just google black studies um uh, birmingham city university that sounds good that is incredible. And we'll make sure to include kind of everything, all the links and everything on the um, on the descriptions for this episode. But yeah, no, thank you so much, Gahinde, for a fantastic discussion. Oh, it's been amazing, honestly. Thank um, you yeah. so much. No, thank you.